episode 411. This is Klaatu, your friendly host. In this episode, we're going to take a lot of listener feedback. Or anyway, what I consider to be a lot. It's like three or four emails, which I think that's a lot. And generally, listener feedback gets me talking, so it'll probably take up the entire episode. I might be able to sneak in a little bit of GCC Java at the end of the show. We'll see We'll see how long I ramble on various topics. So, the first one we're going to cover is the easiest one. James wrote in about episode 402 and noted that I mention a series of blog posts about ELF files, ELF files, which are the uh, executable, th- that's the executable format on Linux. And I think what I must have done, and I, I didn't go back to listen to the whole episode to f- hunt w- when I when I talked about the ELF format, but I think what I probably did was I said that you should go read a set of blog posts about the ELF format, and that I, I read them, and they were really good, and they're linked in the show notes. They were not linked in the show notes, and also, I believe I was mistaken. I, I think I was thinking of the series on linkers, which I do link to. I, I have a show note. Boy, how do you say a link to a, a an article about linkers? I have a hyperlink to an article about linkers in episode 400, the, the show notes of episode 400. So you can go read that if you're interested in the process of linking. That does concern the ELF format. Uh, ELF, E-L-F, stands for executable and linkable format. So the the linker article does touch on ELF a little bit, but I think what I was actually thinking of when I, when I said whatever I said in episode 402 was probably an LWN article, number 631631. That's kind of an easy number to remember because that's the CUPS port repeated twice. So lwn.net slash articles slash 631631. It is an article called How Programs Get Run, Elf Binaries. And I think it's probably from like 2006 or something. Uh, it's by David Drysdale. Oh, it's, it's uh, sorry, 2015. I, I, I think I probably read that as 2005 originally. But yeah, okay. So 2015. This article I read around the same time that I was reading the article about linkers. So I think probably when I said, hey, you should go read this article about ELF files, I I had an, a picture of my in my head of the series about linkers and or linking and and was actually thinking of this LWN article. So those are the two two references I have for you. I will try to put both of them in the show notes of this episode so that I can so so that you can find them easily. I've made a note for myself to remember to do that at the end of this recording. Okay, next up we have Andres and Andres says I'm probably not saying his name correctly. Uh he says that he is the subject line of his email is not technical Linux user. The 1%. So he says I was uh I am I use I use Ubuntu as a normal user. I try to give back as much as I can. I recently discovered Gnome Recipe as my latest example. Because I really do not know what I am doing, I sometimes break things. Then I have to spend time, a long, a learn, spend a spend a long time learning how to fix, to, how to fix it. And then he links to an AskUbuntu.com question that he had posted about um, getting a, a a usable and useful rather a useful bug report or or crash report from applications. 
and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. He says, I do my best to share software and do bug reports and find out what people are asking in the bug report. It feels a lot like yak shaving, which you kind of mentioned on your cast. Because it is my itch to scratch, it feels wrong to ask other tech people in my immediate vicinity that I know for help. And now writing this, I realize this might be the wrong approach. I have a day job managing a makerspace and eight other locations, and I struggle between the balance of having things just work as the only person assigned with time to understand tech. Look up participating or er, participatory city foundation. Um, so I a couple of thoughts or a couple of I guess key takeaways from this email because uh, you you don't know this, but this is like the sixth time I've recorded this uh, sort of episode. I keep getting off track, so I'm going to I'm going I'm trying to keep myself focused because all of these emails that I've received have inspired so much thought, uh, so I'm just going to try to minimize what I directly say in response to them so that I can then just leave some of those thoughts on the back burner, let them simmer, and address them in future episodes. So, first of all, the process of bug reporting, it's actually, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard. Um, and I think I'd, in a way, forgotten about that. I don't know why, because it's still hard. Like, I do it actively myself, maybe not as actively, uh, actively as I should, I don't know, but I, I do feel like I'm filing bug reports frequently. And I think, as I've, as I've mentioned in a previous episode, one of the best ways, like, my, my secret, the, the secret trick that I have to solve all of my problems is to remember to file a bug report. And I, maybe this is a good, maybe this is le legitimately a good topic for a future episode in itself, filing bug reports. I think that might be a good topic. Um, but what I'm going to say really quick here is that when I fi file a bug report, I f very frequently think that I've, I've exhausted all possible troubleshooting steps. Then I go to, I, I sit down and I start filing a bug report and they have questions in their little templates like, what version have you tried this on? What version of the application have you tried this with? Blah, blah, blah. And so what I'll do is I'll sit there and I'll be, I'll be filing out the bug report and then I'll hit something where it says, have you tried it on, you know, by turning this knob? And I'll, and I'll think to myself, that's not going to make a difference if I turn that knob, but just to verify, I go try it, turn that knob, oh, it works. Little things like that. So bug reporting is is a troubleshooting step for me, but it's it's difficult because when you do it, well, first of all, you have to remember to do it, and you have to and and, and you have to be methodical in how you report the bug. So it does take time just to compose that initial bug report. In theory, um, there's there's something else that I'll get to in a minute that. That, that will kind of reveal something that, in theory, could make it a little bit easier. Um, so it does take time. And also, when you're doing it, if if you do actually hit the submit button when you're submitting a bug report, you know, you get to the point where you actually have exhausted all troubleshooting steps, then they might be getting back to you. <laughs> and, and, then, and they'll ask things like, uh, can you download this version? I think I fixed it. Could you download this and test it? And then you're, then you're stuck. You, now you have an action item. I've got an action item right now. I need to download Firefox, a nightly build of Firefox, and test something um, regarding the FTP uh, protocol. And I don't know if I'm testing that it's just gone completely or or what I'll be testing, but, but there's a Mozilla bug out there that I've filed and... and They've asked me to test something, so I mean that's probably what I'll do with my afternoon. So yes, it's you know you get you get you get stuck into things because now you've gotten involved, you've involved yourself. 
So that's something to think about. And I think for many of us who maybe aren't within that 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 sliver of um, the category of people who are still kind of navigating this landscape, I, th- I think it's a valid way to contribute to open source to to decide that you're going to be someone who triages bugs. And by triage bugs, I mean like pick your favorite. Your your pet open source project, whatever whatever you care about. I've done this myself for KDE. Pick pick your project, and whether or not they have an official bug triage um, special interest group, you can be that triage person. You can go through their bug list every weekend or or you know every Monday morning. What whenever what whatever your focus time is, you can go through their the, the bug list and find the bug reports where someone has reported an issue. But then never ha- hasn't ever come back ever again. Can you can you reproduce that bug? If so, reproduce it. Can you can you get a stack trace of it with debug symbols? If so, do that and and paste that in. You know, sort of like make the bugs more usable, either from the developer point of view or the user point of view. And by that, what I mean is perfectly exemplified in this in this thing that Andres. Uh, referred me to, where he says, hey, look, I filed this bug, I'm assuming he filed this bug, on how to fix an apport retrace. I don't know what apport retrace is. I, I think maybe that's some kind of, is that some kind of, um, no, this is him, yeah, his his username is Andres. Um, I don't know what apport retrace is. I think it's probably an like a crash reporter, maybe, for, for Python or for Ubuntu, I'm not really sure. But in this report, in the, or rather in this question that he posts on askubuntu.com, he links to a gitlab.gnome.org issue that I don't believe he filed because this was created a year ago by someone named Java Zauber, and I don't, I don't feel like that's the same person as Andres, especially since he kind of... Um, oh, and here's his avatar. Yeah, so um, he does... He um, he chimes in about a month ago. So it was issued a year ago, and then it kind of went dark. And then Andres, about a month ago, at the time of this recording, um, chimed in and, and said, hey, I'm having the same problem. And the developers asked him, or pointed out to him, that, hey, the, the, the errors, the stack trace that you have provided... Well, first of all, they ask, hey, can you give us a stack trace? He does that. And then they say, hey, your stack trace is missing debug symbols. So can you give us a stack trace with debug symbols? And so he comes back and he says, well, I don't know how to do that. How do you do that? And they come back and they say, um, well, you have to figure that out sort of on your own because it, it, it's going to vary depending on your distribution. It might be one you know, debug info on Fedora, DBG sim on Debian, etc., in some cases, you might have to recompile, and so he's kind of left. The, the bug is a kind of left in a in a, 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 a with a big question mark. I feel because I don't feel like Andres quite got from from sort of, didn't bridge that gap. I don't think between okay, so they're asking me for this, so I need to go do this task or this set of tasks and so on, and then get them what they're asking for. So I was able to drop in on that bug and explain to any future readers, Andres uh, included, how to install debug symbols on Ubuntu. And I I installed Ubuntu, Groovy Gorilla 20.10, I think it is, and uh, was able to reproduce the error under certain circumstances. 
And so I installed the debug symbols and I got the crash reporter and submitted a, a crash report. So that's the, that's the quicker way, I guess, to submit a bug, which is to lean on the distribution's crash reporting mechanism, which unfortunately right now, today, apparently, in 2021, we have on, on user, quote-unquote, user-friendly distributions, we have crash reporters that are offering to send bug reports without debug symbols in them. Now, I think it would be smarter, I think we could all agree, it would be, it would be smarter for the software to, to come up to say, hey, you've had a crash, and we're noticing in the stack trace, or we're noticing by looking at the repositories that you have added, we're, we're noticing that you don't have debug symbols associated with your application, and that stack trace without debug symbols is useless. Click this button to allow your crash reporter to add uh, the debug symbol repository, which is how you do it on Ubuntu, apparently. I, I just learned this myself. Um, and then to install the um, the package, the relevant package, I mean, we, we can tell that this that this thing crashed. We, we, we Surely we could tell from apt what package this thing that has crashed is associated with. And so then we could just install those debug symbols, relaunch the application, and then if it crashes again, now we've got a useful bug report. And the person can press send, and it sends the bug report, and we're done. And everyone's happy. But having a crash reporter come up that, that's going to forward a stack trace that developers cannot use seems like an odd thing to default to. And I would love it if if we could just smooth that sort of thing over a little bit. Um, although apparently I don't love it that much that I've gone and hacked on the code to make that somehow possible. So who knows? It's an idea, right? There's That's the 1% thing I'm talking about, I guess, because I've got an idea, but I'm not going to do anything with it. So I need 99 other people to hear that idea, and then for one of those 99 people, or 100 people, to, to actually take that on and make it happen. So it's it's difficult, is my is my point, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say, is that bug reporting is difficult, um, and that there's a lot of opportunity there for people who maybe can help tra- maybe help translate and kind of um, bridge any kind of gap between developer and user or user and and hey this is a new OS I know I have no idea what I'm doing I think that's an important role to play uh, and another takeaway here I think would be that um, asking people in your immediate vicinity that you know for help I think is is definitely something that we should all be eager and fearless when we're doing when when we think to do that. I know that myself, as a I guess you know a person of a certain technological um, background, now I certainly would would love to be asked. I love getting questions from people. Like it, it makes me feel useful. It makes me feel like I'm contributing and making their lives easier. And who doesn't like to make someone's life easier? Like that's a great feeling. So I I I feel like. The question is worth asking. I mean, that's my general philosophy in life, I think, is that no question is a, you know, there are no stupid questions, really. I mean, just ask the question. And I know some people, there are people out there who do not agree with that and feel like the the fact that you dare ask a certain question of them is like an insult or something. And, you know, those are the kinds of people that I generally just don't have time for. Like, those are the people, like, I, 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 I feel like it's a, a great way, like if I ask someone a question and they get angry about having been asked that question, 
I feel that's a very great early signal in the relationship that this relationship should go no farther. <laughs> that's, the, I mean, that's, that's, that's great. So yeah, asking dumb questions early on, I think that's a great thing to do because their, their response to that can, can, can send a lot of signals to you. So yeah, ask questions. I think it's a great thing to do. Uh, and the final takeaway from this is that Andres is involved with some really cool stuff. Go to participatorycity.org, I think it is. Well, I'll, I'll include the, the, um, the, the link in the show notes. Oh, it is, participatorycity.org. I, I'm assuming that's what he's talking about. I could be wrong. I don't know, because um, he didn't give me a link, actually. But it, it, it seems within sort of the, the right range of what he's talking about. And it's this project where people are getting together and building stuff for their community uh, within all kinds of different um, sort of uh, all kinds of different different disciplines. And I think that's really, really amazing and would love to see more of that. Okay, and that is um, that's uh, that's that email. Got that one done. And I think now I'm on to the BSD email from Vulcan Rider, as you know him. As I know him, really, uh, Vulcan Rider has been a listener of the show for quite, quite, quite a long time, and he's and and again, this is a, a big, thought-provoking um, email, but I'm going to just try to go with key takeaways to keep myself from rambling. So he says um, the 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 I'm not going to read the whole email because it is quite long, actually, and and then I emailed him back, and then I need to he emailed me back, and then now I need to email him back. So it's it's an ongoing conversation. But here's what he says. Um, he says that you seem to have fallen into the same type of generalization that you are calling out others for, generalizing Linux as hard to use and so forth. Maybe back in the day it was, but you make the point that it wasn't, that it isn't that way any longer. But then you make a very similar generalization about BSD. You said it was for server, it was a server-only OS, therefore making the same generalization of which you accused Linux naysayers. So, I mean, that's that's sort of the the that's the condensed point the, that kind of encapsulates his overall point, I think. And and I emailed him back sort of an explanation, uh, which I could even actually sort of read from from my explanation. Maybe would be the most efficient way to to go about this. Um, he says, um, I or I, I say, sorry, this is me now. I say. Um, I suspect that I didn't communicate my point effectively in the show, blah, blah, blah. What I was trying to express about BSD not being a quote-unquote general use OS was that BSD had earned, quotes, a reputation as a server-only OS, just as Linux has earned, quote, um, a reputation as a difficult OS. If all open-source projects had infinite marketing budgets, then we could all put whatever new spin on what we're, quote-unquote, selling. But legacy reputations and current perceptions affect things. For instance, right now, Canonical and Red Hat all but hide the fact that they distribute a desktop OS. Go to Ubuntu.com. It's as scary and ITE as Red Hat's. And on the BSD side, the same goes for PC BSD. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. True OS. Well, that doesn't really exist anymore. But anyway, the point is, I think, the point is that I'm I'm trying to make is that we in this open that this is me just off the cuff now that the email um, I lost interest in, but um, generally I'm saying that uh, the the open source th- this open source community that we're building, we we have um, maybe a we have a job in front of us. 
And I think that job is to, uh, as, you know, sort of cheesy as it sounds, I mean, we need to be the change we want to see in Unix, essentially. We need to be the people doing the things that we want to do on open source and enabling things that other people want to do on open source if we want to demonstrate that open source is a viable solution. Now, he he came back and said, I think it was in, in a response, which I haven't responded to yet, so I hope it, it doesn't feel like I'm sniping him here without like his opportunity to respond to me. But he says, um, he says, BSD is doing everything that I need it to do. I personally believe that if you do the due diligence, you will find that the OS will do what you need it to. Um, and, and I, I, I can't agree more. And in fact, that, that has been a mantra of mine, I think maybe forever. Um, I just, because I just feel like, I feel like it was so I mean, even, honestly, even when I was a hardcore Mac user, like, all I knew in computing was Macs, that, which I grew up with. That's, that was just, that's, that's how I grew up. I knew about Macs. Even then, I mean, at least as an adult, I don't remember what I thought as a kid, but I mean, as an adult, even when people would come to me with the cliche, uh, I, what was it? It was something like, Macs are better for graphics work, or something like that. That was people in the, in like the, the, I don't know when, but like, you know, before I switched to Linux, that was what I was always hearing. And I heard it a lot in university because, uh, because that was such a, I went to, I, I went into like for an art program. So you, you just hear a lot about, oh, well, you have to get a Mac because they're better for graphics. They're better for video. They're better for audio, whatever. So anything creative, essentially, Macs were just, they're just better at it. And even when I was, the Mac user in the room, I just, I couldn't, I, I just felt like that was a real generalization that I could not stand behind it, and I didn't stand behind it, and, and I regularly encouraged people to not believe that, because I knew, um, just sort of based on really intuition, that people were doing creative things on non-Macs, like, I knew that that was happening, I, I didn't know how it was happening because I wasn't a Windows user, and those were the only two things that existed as far as I knew, Mac and Windows. Um, and and before I found Linux, I did briefly um, consider the option of switching to Windows because I thought, well, this Mac stuff is really, really expensive, and I'm running out of money quickly. What can I do to uh, get around that? And and I did. I looked at laptops that, that were not Macs for the first time in my life, and I was just like, yeah, maybe this is an option. Now, luckily, I found Linux before I went down that path, so I didn't have to pursue it and or get over that. But the point is... There are cliches, and one of the cliches now, of course, is that, well, you just can't do creative stuff on open source, or, or the cliche is that you just can't run, you, you can't get customer support on open source, or you can't get, you know, whatever the cliche is, there, there are people out there just repeating the, the, um, the FUD, and the, the FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and, and it's, it's a, it's a technique that marketing company, or that marketing uses when, when you want, to cast aspersion on your competition, you you sort of insert these sort of these reasonable or unreasonable doubts about the platform, and so all it takes really is one person in a room of people considering using open source for I don't know podcast production or music production or, or graphics work 
one person can just say, yeah, but you know, open source doesn't really do that well. It's not very, it's not very integrated and it's, it's, it, it's very, it's done by so many different people and you can't get support and you, you know, and suddenly everyone's thinking, yeah, you know, all of those things sound like they're true things. So geez, we'd better not do that. Never mind that in the real world, you know, there's, there's, there's no integration between proprietary apps either. Uh, and they're buggy as well and so on. And there's certainly no customer support. So it's, it's, it doesn't like, yes, it's true, but it's also true of like everything. So who cares? So yeah, the, the idea that you need to do, you know, as long as you do the due diligence, you can, you can get the OS to do whatever it is you need it to do. And I mean, I know that there is probably, there is, there is strictly a, an exception to that, you know? Um, I mean, absolutely. There's there there are exceptions. Like you're going to find exceptions to that to that statement. But I think 98% of the time that is exactly true. Like it, sometimes it takes, and I've tried to express this in previous episodes, like earlier, probably last year, or two years ago. You can go find them when I'm talking about like using open source and, and why it's important to use open source and, and how using open source within proprietary environments is can be difficult and so it's better to settle on open source for all the the whole pipeline um what i've tried to express is that sometimes it takes sort of a reframing you have to sort of sit down and rethink what your goal what the journey to your goal looks like you know and it it's it's tough because we are we are taught or we learn whatever one way and so we assume that that's the only way to get there, you know? I mean, for instance, if you sit down in front of a proprietary graphics application, let's say, or a video application, whatever, and there's a big green button that says create lens flare, and you think, okay, cool, that's how you create the lens flare. You press the green button. And then if you're looking at an open source application, graphics or video or whatever, and there's no green button that says create lens flare, then you think... Well, obviously, there's no way to do that on this platform. How can anyone take this platform seriously? Now, then someone else who's who's never had a green button that says create lens flare comes up and says, oh, no, you can create a lens flare. Here's how you do it. You go up to this effects menu and you add or you, this paint window and you, you add a, a, a dot. And then you go up to this effect and you blur the dot. And you zoom in on the, you do a zoom blur on the dot, and then you um, polarize it or whatever it would be. Um, I don't think polarize is the right term. Uh, and, and and suddenly you get the ring around the dot. And so now you've got a lens flare. It's just instead of doing it with a green button, you've composed the lens flare. And some people would probably argue tooth and nail that that's the superior way to do it anyway, because then you have more control over the composition of the lens flare. And while other people will, will argue tooth and nail that that's just too much work for a lens flare how could you not have a green button for a lens flare and then inevitably within open source someone's going to write a script to automate the couple of steps that you would have had to do and essentially give you a green button but the green button isn't a green button it's in a it's buried in a, a, a menu of python foo or whatever kind of scripting ability that application has so it's it's yes it's different but it's the same and in the end it is the same and at the end of the day no one's going to be able to look at the finished product and say well that was clearly done on open source versus well that was clearly done on something super expensive because it just doesn't matter but to to the user it feels like it matters and and that's kind of that that's just an example lens flare was a, a random example that i i made up but there are lots of other such examples on on Linux and on BSD, and it just doesn't matter 
because yes, you can make the thing do what you want to do. I learned really early on, I feel probably not early enough, but I pretty early on, I learned that talking about quote unquote killer features on on anything, on Linux, on on open source in general, it, it's it's a way to be proven wrong very, very quickly. Because the minute you say, well there's no possible way to do such and such on on this OS or on this platform or whatever, is the minute someone will build the application that makes that possible. Because ultimately, we're all talking to the same hardware, right? We're all programming probably in either literally the same programming language, like C or something, or C++, or something very close together, and we're, we're talking to the same hardware. We, we've all got the same graphic cards and the same CPUs, and everything's basically the same. It's just a matter of how we're interfacing with it. So the, 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 this myth of, of certain things just not being possible is really annoying, which is exactly what Vulcan Rider is saying. Personally, he says, I believe that if you do the due diligence, you will find that the OS will do what you need it to do. And that's that. The one caveat I have as Clatu, the one caveat to that great, great sentence is that we also need to keep in mind that, that what our OS is doing right now isn't the only thing that we ever want that OS to do. So... We, we've got to keep in mind the fact that there are new people coming into our OS. They want to do new things, and we want to get them into our OS, and we want them to have their different interests, and we want them to push that OS forward. And in order, I think, to get those people, to attract those people to our OS, we just we have to continue to demonstrate that the OS is a flexible thing. It's an inviting thing, it's a flexible thing, it's a friendly thing, and so on. And as I said in episode 407 or 409 or whatever that was when I was talking about this stuff, um, that's, that's the, that is our reputation. That, or that is a reputation that we want to build. And we have a, we have our previous reputations of being difficult or being for server only or for, for not having a way to easily install applications or, or whatever the reputation is. We got to get over those, and that's hard work because we don't have a concentrated uh, brainwashing machine to do cool, flashy ads on TV. Um, it's just a bunch of people doing stuff on on open source. So let's keep doing that. All right, and then finally, 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 I have Matthias. Matthias. Um, Matthias. Yeah, said it almost almost the first time. Matthias says that he's um, reading the Harry Potter books again um, in English, um, and he came across this term, Death Eater, and was wondering what the heck Death Eater is talking about. And um, as far as I know, Matthias, it is just a spooky-sounding name. I don't think that they actually eat death. I think it's just a properly spooky-sounding term. I hope that is uh, useful to you. It's interesting because my partner actually read Harry Potter in Polish because she was learning Polish. And so and, and Harry Potter was the book that she knew she's read it, you know, twenty seven times at least. And so she she figured what better text to familiarize myself with a, a foreign language than something that I know really, really well in English anyway. And uh there are a bunch of things in in the Polish version that, that, that don't translate, you know, exactly as you might think. I think one of them is the tiara, the tiara of, of, 
of categorization or something, and it, that was that's the sorting hat. So you've got in Harry Potter, you've got a sorting hat that sends students into different houses, and in the Polish version, it's a tiara. Some funny little translation quirks. So that's the only other, that's all of the listener feedback that I've received. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for emailing in. I love um, I love getting a little bit of feedback every now and again about various things. Um, including the challenging ones, you know, like the stuff that challenges something that I've said. I think it's, uh, it's always worth kind of rethinking a topic or, or sort of seeing it from a different angle. And, you know, new ideas, different ideas, whatever. I mean, it, it gets your thoughts and it starts them sort of brewing into, into new thoughts. Hey, speaking of brewing, I think it's time for a cup of coffee. Let's go do that. We'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about GCC. <laughs> coffee? I think you do. I can almost smell it through the microphone. Oh, that's actually just my coffee. Sorry, never mind. But anyway, hopefully you do have coffee. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this uh, GCC stuff. Now, in the previous in previous episode uh, four ten or whatever, we talked a little bit about well, we talked a lot bit about GCC, and I observed that there were several packages involved in getting the GCC. Um, not stack, but just sort of the, the the many different options that come along with GCC into your Slackware machine. So I'm going to look at GCC dash. Well, actually, I'm just going to, yeah, I'm going to tab into var log packages, GCC dash. So we have GCC 5.5.0, GCC dash G++, GCC dash G Fortran, GCC dash G Nat, GCC dash go, GCC dash Java GCC dash C. And initially I wasn't sure how many of these I was actually going to go over because so many of them are just kind of a lot like GCC, essentially. They're they're sort of variations on GCC. At least that's what they claim. Certainly if you look at, for instance, G++, that, that very much is, I think, I, I dare say, it's a link to GCC. It is not. I knew I shouldn't have ventured to say that. It's an ex- it's a self-standing executable, actually. 858 kilobytes, which is about the size of GCC. Anyway, initially I wasn't sure how many of these I was going to actually go through, because I felt like once you kind of get the feel for GCC, then you basically have, you, you've got it down. That That's GCC, and depending on what options you use, uh, depending on what language you're using, um, that controls sort of how you're interfacing with GCC, but essentially you're still, it's all the same at the end of the day. But then I was looking into some of the the package listings for these different GCC packages, and I realized that, that they really do come, some of them, many of them, come with a, a, a true, a, a, a good set of, of unique applications and commands that, to be fair, yeah, they, they probably do warrant some some discussion. So that's what we're going to do after all. So we have GCC 5.5. Um, of course, in 14.2, if you're looking at the package listing for 
you'll see that GCC was actually 5.3. I have upgraded GCC to 5.5 myself from Alien Bob's repository. I think as part of my uh, go going to 32-bit compatibility stuff, either that or KDE 5. I can't remember which one it would have been. I think it's actually I do remember. It says multi-lib Alien. So this is Alien Bob's multi-lib stuff that I've added. So I've, I'm I'm talking about a slightly later edition or version that shipped with Slackware, but I don't think it really matters. So I guess the next one that we should look at, according to the list, the master list on on Slackware, um, on the ser servers, is G++. And of course, that being the next one, of course it would be the next one, because that one, I'm not going to go over. I mean, we really did just go over that. C++, uh, the, yeah. G++ to compile C++ code is essentially the same exact feature set as GCC, except that it, it has features required for C++ compilation. So GCC, G++, all of the same options essentially are going to work from your GCC in your G++. It's just that that's what you'll be using when you're compiling C++. And, and that pack package contains one binary executable, which is g++-gcc-5.5.0. And if I do a which on g++, it shows me that that's a user bin g++. Uh, plus. And if I do an ls-l um, on that, it reveals that, yeah, g++ is a symlink to g++-gcc-5.5.0. So that one I'm not going to go over again because I don't think that that's really significantly different. So let's take a look at this one. No idea what to expect on this one. This is G4Tran. Now this one has a G4Tran-gcc-5.5.0 and as you can imagine G4Tran itself, the command, is a symlink to to that executable. So G4Tran, if I do a man G4Tran, says that it's a GNU Fortran compiler, and it says that it supports all options supported by GCC, which again, same thing for G++. Only options specific to GNU Fortran are documented here. So this man page for G4Tran is, you know, you you, you can read the GCC one, and then you can read this one, and you'll get all of your your specific your Fortran specific options listed here. Now I don't I don't know the first thing about Fortran. I know that it's an old language. Um, so I'm just gonna look up Hello World Fortran, and I'm gonna find a Fortran Hello World um, application code dump whatever example, and um, and we'll see what happens. So it looks like the first thing that I'm supposed to do is. Um, print star comma hello world and then end. So I'm going to open up, go into my demo directory here, and I'm going to open up a file called hello dot, dot, dot 590 because that is what I've been told is a Fortran uh, extension, a valid Fortran extension. And then um, I'll do G Fortran. Actually, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to edit that. So that it says instead of hello world, I'm going to put hello Fortran. That way, just just in case, you know, I don't want to accidentally run a previous hello world and not and not know it. So G Fortran hello dot F ninety. 
And I'm not even gonna. Well, I guess I'll give it an output. I'll do um, H for tran. I guess. I guess that'll actually um, that'll reveal. Uh, okay, so it something happened there. So now if I do a dot slash G H Fortran, I get the string hello Fortran. Now there is a space in front of the hello, so that's interesting. I don't feel like I. Oh, I think. I wonder if I delete. So now I'm doing print star comma quote hello Fortran with no space. Recompile it. Rerun it. I still have a space in front of hello Fortran. I don't know. I don't know why there's a space in front of that. But that's with the print statement. And um, if I do info g Fortran, uh, let's see if they actually tell me anything about it. No, it doesn't look to me like there's any documentation of the actual language here. Oh no, here it says language documentation. I don't know where I'm supposed to go for the actual language, though. Now, it doesn't look like this is going to tell me exactly how to write, you know, like... I mean, it, it does document elements of the language, but I'm not getting a, a very quick... I'm not seeing the obvious sort of explanation. Yeah, surprise, surprise, I can't teach myself Fortran in the three minutes that I'm allotting to this topic. So, I guess we'll stop there. But apparently, from what I'm what I'm seeing on the on the internet, there is a write function as well, and so I could do this more complex version of my hello world application, which starts with program hello implicit none write parentheses asterisk comma asterisk close parentheses and then open quote hello I'm gonna make it say hello Fortran actually I'm gonna say hello G Fortran close quote, end program hello. And now let's try try compiling that and running that. S still a space in front of hello G Fortran. So I don't know. I, apparently, I don't know if the output of Fortran just gives it a space in front of it or, or what happens. And the line break is implicit. That's kind of an interesting thing as well. I didn't have to tell it to do a line break. It just gave that to me, you know, for free. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, that's that's G Fortran, and that's as much as I know about it, really. And I, you could argue that I should do more research into Fortran, so that I could do a better sort of introduction into G Fortran. But honestly, I just I don't have any use for Fortran myself right now. Um, I don't anticipate on having a use for it, so I'm not going to do a deep dive on Fortran, and and I'm not qualified to do that anyway. So. I could spend a week researching it and then try to talk intelligently about it, but that's it's not really going to happen. So uh, that's that's all we get. That's all we get for the uh, the G Fortran compiler. Speaking of not doing not being qualified to talk about something, here is the next one: GCC GNAT. What the heck is GNAT? Well, according to the um, the info page here, it is a. I'm trying to get it up to my screen. Uh, th this package contains those parts of the compiler collection needed to compile ADA code, ADA code. GNAT implements ADA 95, ADA 2005, and ADA 2012, and it may also be invoked in ADA 83 compatibility mode, which is the the original ADA. ADA, I think it was actually 1980, but but this, I guess they call it ADA 83. I don't know if that's because it was wasn't ready until 83 or what happened, but anyway. 
ADA 83 compatibility mode. By default, GNAT assumes ADA 2012. The base GCC package is also required for this to work. Now, GNAT, interestingly, is like 2.9 megabytes, so that's quite large compared to the GCC binary, which is like less than a megabyte. Don't really know why that is, um, but ADA was, was kind of new to me. I... I feel like it is common enough of a term in the computing space because of Ada Lovelace. So it's it's hard to extract or to differentiate, you know, the different contexts I've heard the word Ada in computers. Um, so whether I've heard of Ada or not, I don't know. But if you want to do more research about it, you can go to adacore.com, A-D-A-C-O-R-E.com, and that has a lot of really interesting information on it and I yeah if you're curious about these kinds of things I, I highly recommend going to that page they have a nice little introductory video which admittedly um, maybe they maybe it goes on a little bit too long sort of in the praise of Ada I mean I get that you like Ada it's adacore.com so there are some parts of it where you start to question what they're talking about, but then they tell you what they're talking about, which is quite nice. So um, they sort of assert their confidence, and then they demonstrate, or they, they yeah, they demonstrate why, well, they don't demonstrate, but they, they explain why they have confidence, and then they assert further confidence, uh, which which is as good a way as any to promote something. So it's a, it's a, I think it's worth watching the little video, uh, or at least listening to it. There's not much to see, but... The idea, I guess, the main the main selling point of Ada is the I don't know if it would be test driven, but certainly um, the sort of the built in strictness of the compiler, apparently, which sounds great to me as a lover of XML. I really appreciate things that that run without quirks, essentially. Um, I think it's really cool that we as humans have been able to build in certain allowances in some spaces, but at the same time, I don't know how often I ever appreciate them, because um, those allowances are very frequently exactly what causes something to break later on down the line. I mean, think about, even if we just don't, let's not think about XML. Let's think about make files. Like if you if you're composing a make file, you shouldn't be. You should be using CMake or AutoTools. But let's say you are. I, I do it all the time for uh, just automating various tasks. So let's say you're writing a make file and you preface or, or you yeah you preface a line with a bunch of spaces and it lines up with everything and it looks perfectly fine to you. But at least in Emacs, it'll warn you. I think um, it'll warn you that you're using spaces and not a tab here. Why would you be doing that? You know you're not supposed to do that in a make file. Go back and fix it. And if it's not Emacs that I'm thinking of, then it's make itself. It just, it simply stops and says, hey, I can't, can't do that. Yeah, no, I think Emacs is when you save it, when you go to save it, it warns you that, I think, uh, that there's a, an error. But anyway, either Emacs or, or make will, will, and definitely make warns you hey this is not correct and so you can't proceed until you go fix the little thing that you thought well it's close enough right no, well, not really with computers there is no such thing as close enough we can program it to be close enough we can program things to say hey if there's no semicolon at the end of the line and it appears that the next line there's reasonable expectation that that next line is part of the previous line 
then treat it as the same line. Just, just, just go for it. But I mean, what about the times when that's not true? And we did just forget the semicolon. So those that that strictness is it's 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 essentially a form of linting, but during you know at, at compile time or at runtime, I guess. Well, it depend it depends on what you were talking about, I guess. But either way, you get what I'm saying. Like, I like it when programs call you out on a mistake because then you know that mistake exists. And when the thing goes into production, that mistake doesn't exist because something has caught it. And so they're talking a lot about that in this video, about how there are definitions. And when you assert that something is going to happen a certain way, then Ada as a language, by the way it is designed and designed to compile and so on, it can catch when something that you have asserted is going to happen one way, it can catch when, hey, that thing didn't happen. And we, I think, yeah, in my Hacker Public Radio um, example of GNU Debugger, which we'll get into eventually ourselves on this show as well, um, but I did a Hacker Public Radio episode about GNU Debugger and how to use it, and I, I have code in there in, I think it's C, or maybe it's C++, I don't remember, but it's it's code that declares a certain output you know it says this this value is going to be an integer and then later in that same code it tries to print that value as a string and so that causes an error except that in gcc when i compiled it it doesn't catch that it it compiles in other words so at the end of your comp compilation of of that demonstration code you have code that that is not going to work but it's compiled. And so then when you run it, it crashes. And I use that example to, to sort of demonstrate how you can use GNU debugger to attempt to sort of hunt down issues. I mean, it's a really basic example, but I think it's kind of perfect in this context of Ada, because what they're saying is that that would never happen in Ada. If you, if you attempted to write an application that returns an integer, and then you try to use the, the, the value as a string later, that would not compile. Now, interestingly, I think I mentioned this in the Hacker Public Radio episode, um, interestingly, the, the LLVM or LVVM, no, LLVM, Clang, um, does not compile that code. It does catch it during the compilation step. So how much of this is, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't design programming languages, and I don't write compilers. So what the interaction is between the language design and the compiler and what catches what, I, I can't begin to understand that myself. Uh, it's an interesting problem to to think about, but not something that I know about. So anyway, what we can do is we can make a little demo application in Ada. And apparently the extension for Ada code is ADB. Do not know why, didn't look into why, but the syntax is, um, well, it's a little bit beyond me. This, this seems, um, it, it seems both, well, so, okay, so first of all, this grew apparently out of Pascal, which doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Um, but what I do notice about it is that it has certain conventions that I associate with Lua, which I like. And um, there's a certain um, explicitness, I guess, to some of this. It's kind of interesting. So, I mean, this is just a basic Hello World application, so I don't know how much we're really going to learn from this. But... Let's do um, with space ada.txt underscore io. So obviously we're we're importing uh, a library or we're 
yeah, we're importing or, or including a, a, lang uh, um, a library. So with ada.txt underscore io semicolon, and then I'm going to create a new procedure. That's what this is called. So I don't know why a procedure is called a procedure and not a function. Um, I don't know if it's purely sort of a, an idiomatic thing or whether there's some significant difference. I feel like it's an idiomatic thing, um, and I certainly can appreciate the idea of a procedure instead of a function. As a non-mathematician, procedure certainly makes a lot more sense to me as, as someone who's just sort of not supposed to be programming anyway. But for me, procedure is a procedure. That makes sense. Function doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to my brain. Although I will admit that learning what a function meant in computing helped me learn more about math because I never understood what a math function was, but now I, I have a, a, a grasp on what that is because I associate it with computing. I, I realize now, okay, a function is a box. You put stuff in, you crank the, you, you turn the crank and something else comes out. So uh, reliably, the, the, you, you can predict what's going to come out the other end, which I think honestly is a hugely, hugely underappreciated concept in the world. Um, just the idea that there are systems that we have designed as humans where we can we can tell the future, we can foretell the future because there's a function that we've created, and we can we can generally prove that if you put values of this kind of uh, of of one sort into it on one end and turn the crank, then values of uh, a predictable value will come out the other end. I mean that's huge. It's huge, and we just don't understand that. And I think. If more people understood that, there'd be a lot less sort of um, uncertain fear and uncertainty and doubt about lots of different scientific concepts. Anyway, procedure. Procedure space greet is what we're doing because that's the official Ada code tutorial. So uh, procedure space greet with a capital G, although we could call it apparently anything that we want. So I'm going to call it penguin is, and then the next line begin. This is nice. This is explicit, right? Like. Procedure penguin is. What is it? Well, we're going to begin. That's the first begin. That's we're, we're flagging that we, we have begun the procedure. Love that. Love that. So the next line in there, official code is a comment, and comments are made with a dash dash. That's exactly the Lua syntax. So again, I like this a lot. Dash dash, print hello world to the screen. Well, it's not going to be hello world. It's going to be hello Ada to the screen. And um, the next line, we actually have our code. So that's ada.txt underscore io dot. So that's the language, that's the library from which this, this procedure maybe put line comes from. And, and so it is ada.txt underscore io dot put underscore line. This, that feels a little bit Ruby-ish, doesn't it? Uh, if you've ever read Ruby code, there's um, puts and, uh, or is puts? Or put, maybe neither of those two things, but yes, it, it, it does, it is an interesting concept. So put underscore line, uh, I don't know how much I like the word put, P-U-T, put, for, for this sort of thing, but that's what we're using. Put underscore line, and then space, um, parentheses, quote, hello, Ada Lovelace. Hello, the ghost of Ada Lovelace. There, that's what I've got. Uh, close quote. Close parentheses, semicolon. Final line of our code is end, E-N-D, again, very Lua-like. But specifically, instead of just end, we say end penguin. 
So it's very, and then semicolon. So it's very, very clear. You, the procedure penguin is, and then it begins, and then it ends. And and I mean, that's the kind of thing that I put in my code all the time, except with comments. I mean, I do that all the time. I don't care what, what language I'm writing in. If there's a, a scope being closed, and this is a scope, right? The beginning and the end, that's the scope of the procedure penguin. Um, then I put comments you know, close penguin or whatever. But in, in Ada, it's just built in. It's end space penguin. Simple as that. Really, really nice. Really clean. Okay, so now here's the fun part. How do we compile this thing with Gnat? Uh, Gnat, man Gnat, nothing. Info Gnat, nothing. It's a good start, right? So Gnat dash dash help. Um, and it tells me that there are a bunch of sort of sub-commands. And this is kind of interesting to me because um, uh, as far as I can tell, if I do an ls-lh slash user bin gnat, for instance, that's a self-standing 2.9 megabyte executable. And then if I go to something like, I don't know, gnat bind, that's a self-standing 1.4 executable. Uh, gnat chop self-standing 981 kilobytes. So everything seems to be their own applications, as far as I can tell. Um, and yet, at the same time, in this list of available uh, of available commands, it's gnat space bind, gnat space chop. And they each point to gnat bind, gnat chop. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how all of these things work together. Maybe if I did a LDD gnat... No, LDD gnat bind. Yeah, they they seem pretty independent to me. It's it's really interesting. I I, I don't know how it all works together. But anyway, um, the one that seems to make sense to me is gnat make. So I'm gonna do gnat space make, or I could just do gnat make, I guess. Um, but I'm gonna do gnat space make, which I'm assuming you know makes a call to gnat make. Um, and then we we've already heard that the default is gnat. 2012, so dash gnat 2012 is not necessary, so won't do that. Is there an output flag? Uh, this is a very long help line. There's an optimization control, dash capital O, 0, 1, 2, 3, um, dash O name, choose an alternate executable name. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, cool. So that's very GCC-like. So gnat space make, space dash O We'll do um, hello Ada, all one string. And then I'm going to do, I guess, um, what is it? Hello.adb, I think is the name of my application, of my code, my source code. And I guess I'm also going to do a dash capital O3. Let's try that. So we're optimizing it a lot. Hello.adb. And could I also do a dash S for stripping? We'll see. Um, Hello.adb. Okay, let's do it. No, that's incorrect. It's not called hello.adb. It's called uh, greet. .adb. There we go. So now we've got that stuff, and it says um, greet.adb warning file does not match unit name should be penguin.adb. Okay, well then the documentation has lied to me because it said that it could be called anything. It said very specifically that greet could be called anything. Although I guess that this is a warning, not an error. So there is that. So uh, Gannett space make says that it has, first of all, it's issued one warning, and then it says it says that it's calling gnat bind dash x greet dot ali and gnat link greet dot ali dash o hello ada dash o three. So 
it seems to me like there's a little bit of assembly and linking and stuff happening, so that's good to know. And now, I guess, in theory, I should be able to run Hello Ada and get a little greeting message. And it says, Hello the Ghost of Ada Lovelace. So that is definitely the code that I wrote. Let's do an ls-lh on Hello Ada. It's 250 kilobytes. I'm going to do optimization 0 just for kicks. And, oh, that's actually 250 kilobytes as well, so not a whole lot of savings on a simple Hello World application with optimization. Um, but let's do a file on Hello Ada, and it says that it is not stripped. So either I'm using the wrong, um, I'm, I'm either using the wrong strip, strip command, which is quite possible, or I am just not going to be able to get this thing yeah, I, I, I think maybe maybe it doesn't do that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not seeing anything. If I do help grep-i strip, doesn't look like that's a thing maybe in, in Ada. So I don't know. Maybe that's just not something that needs to happen. I don't know. So anyway, um, it's, it's good to... I guess I could try just literally the strip hello Ada and now do a file on hello ada and now it is stripped and it is how big is this file now 169 kilobytes so that did make a difference i don't know why the stripping command or option doesn't work during compilation but it doesn't and that's okay i mean that's what the, the strip command is is there for for exactly that purpose i'm sure okay um let's take another look at 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 ada and i'm going to open up greet.adb again. I'm going to change the name from penguin to greet because apparently that was not a factual tip in their documentation. Maybe I just read it too quickly. Maybe it maybe it can, can, um, qualified that a little bit. Okay, so we're going to do with ada.text.io still. Procedure greet is begin for i, capital I, in one space dot dot space five space loop not sure what I think about this syntax, honestly, myself, um, just as a non a non expert in this sort of realm of program design. I feel like I'm confused as to the uses of uh, uh, parentheses. I, I kind of I should have mentioned it when I when, during the Hello World when I, I kind of thought honestly that Hello World felt a little bit out of place for for that particular call because I I felt like everything's so natural feeling like what's the what's the significance of the parentheses really um and maybe that becomes clearer once you do you start doing more complex um procedures but um i don't know i i feel like in my mind if we're gonna put hello world in parentheses i had to put one dot dot five in parentheses because like yeah what like that's kind of a mini scope right one dot dot five but anyway they um they they don't do that so for i in one dot dot five loop and then so this is interesting in their documentation they have just put underscore line now they dropped the ada dot text underscore io so I, I'm, I'm sure they're trying to demonstrate that that as long as there is you know as long as put line is a unique call to something within an included library you don't have to prepend it with that library but that is kind of an interesting um, interesting thing that they that they showed. Uh, and then parentheses, hello world, and I guess I'll just do hello Ada now. Hello Ada, close quote. So it's parentheses, quote, hello Ada, close quote, 
space ampersand. So that's the concatenation is this ampersand thing. And then integer with a capital I, apostrophe image, and then space parentheses I, close parentheses, close parentheses, semicolon. So that's kind of interesting to me because it... Um, I don't know. This, some of the clarity is definitely starting to to sort of wane a little bit. What what's what's going on here is that the value of i is obviously being incremented during this loop, like that's what the loop is is for. But from the program's perspective, i is a constant, and any attempt to modify i is actually not allowed. You can't do that. So integer apostrophe image is a function in itself that takes an integer and converts it to a string, and they call this an attribute. They call this uh, language construct an attribute, which is what that apostrophe is is demonstrate or is is marking. And and so it is essentially yeah, it's it it's a to i, I guess is what or no, it's not. It's the other way around. Uh, it's converting the integer to a string so that you can then print it along, or you can put it along with hello Ada. So we'll see how that manifests itself uh, soon. Um, and then they demonstrate that you can do a comment after that, so semicolon, and then they have a dash dash, and they, they mark this as a procedure call. Uh, and then end loop, semicolon, and then end greet, semicolon. So I'll save that. Go back out here, and then I'll do a gnat make dash o. I think I'm just gonna call it h ada. It's close. It's shorter, and it, it'll it'll be triggered easier. So I've got gnat space make space dash o hada space greet dot adb. And no, that is a failure. What did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. I did do something wrong. I see it already. Okay, so it, it's telling me that there's an error and that put line is not visible. That's how they express that. They say greet, greet ADV 607. That's the line number and probably the character position, I would, I would assume. Uh, definitely the line number. Um, eight, 607 um, put line is not visible, is, is what it says. So the reason that is true is because I forgot to add up at the top here, I have with ada.text underscore io semicolon, and then I'm supposed to also have the line use ada.text underscore io semicolon. So that's a little bit like, um, or at least I associate it with like use namespace standard, that sort of thing. So if I if I add that line, then when I'm making calls to that library, it, it should work. So gnat make dash o hada greet dot adb. It compiles this time. So if I do dot slash hada, hello add a one, hello add a two, hello add a three, hello add a four, hello add a five. That is working as expected. That's probably realistically what we have for ADA. I mean, I don't know any more about ADA than than that. I highly recommend going to learn.adacore.com slash courses slash intro dash two dash ada it's a it's a good little um lesson it's quite interesting it's very very complete actually it it, it talks about about you know the basics which we've just ba barely touched on here it, it gets you into um I don't know, sub-programs and modular programming and strongly typed languages and records and arrays and all kinds of stuff. Generics, that's that's supposed to be a big deal, generics. I, I don't know the first thing about them in ADA. 
But yeah, this is a, a whole new world, and if I knew um, even almost as much about Ada as I did about like Lisp, then I think it would have it absolutely would have gotten its own episode. But I just I don't have I don't have that kind of experience with it, and I I did consider sort of stepping through like more of this tutorial myself and then kind of reporting on what I found. But I just kind of feel like that's a non-expert reporting on something with no expertise. And I don't know if there's any value in that, to be honest. So I'm hoping that this, you know, if you're if you're inclined to exploring new programming languages, then that maybe this will pique your interest and encourage you to go do that. And if not, then that's okay too. Um, and then I guess just to prove, I, I don't know... I don't feel like this actually proves anything, but we can get errors if we want. Like, if we switch integer apostrophe image to float apostrophe image, and then not make blah blah, then it says compilation error, expected type standard dot float, found type standard dot integer. So you do get, you know, you, you get proper errors about, like, type errors and stuff like that. Um, this isn't, a, that's not a one-to-one -one comparison of the C uh, thing that got by, or C++ thing that got by the compiler in the Hacker Public Radio episode that, I, that I'm mentioning, um, because that, that was I, the, the, the printf statement that, that snuck past the compiler was outside of, I think, the main function or, or something like that. So it's, there, there, was a, there was a little bit of a scope shift Whereas this is all in the same procedure, in the same loop even, so yeah, I don't think that it's comparable. But, I mean, you can get errors for badly composed code, which is always good. It's a good thing to see. You want that in your compiler. Um, and other than that, that's that's Ada and GCC GNAT. Try it out if you're curious about, you know, sort of the alternate worlds of programming languages. And, um, yeah, I, I had fun with it for the little amount of time that I spent with it. And uh, I don't see myself going back to it anytime very soon, only because I don't collect programming languages. Uh, but some people do. Some people really are good at that sort of thing and can just kind of go back and forth and explore. Uh, so if, if that's you, then now you know Ada exists. Ada is um, still, you know, it's still being developed. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that, they're, that they've designed with great intention for reliability and... Um, and you should check it out. So thanks for listening to this episode, and uh, I will talk to you next week with more GCC stuff. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf as in free software foundation.org and of course you can visit my various websites gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info i will see you next time